everybody, it's Gene Marks. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Biz Books. This is where I meet with super smart people that have written really great business books, forcing me to read business books, by the way, uh, and ask them a question about the book, which I just read. And, and I've got Neil Hoyne with me, who has written, converted the data-driven way to win customers' hearts. So first of all, Neil, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, tell me, first of all, and tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Of course. Uh, so Gene, first background is, uh, well, first, actually, I'm just happy to be here. This is a lot of fun to talk about something I know and I love. Hopefully yep. we'll find out. Uh, origin of the book, Pandemic Project. Uh, <laughs> a lot of free time, two toddlers running around. I was waking up really early in the morning. But you just got to this point where you want to share, you want to connect with people. And the inspiration of it, while we talk a lot about data and customer relationships, that's a really difficult subject to write a book about. Um, to get excited about writing, let alone reading a book on data. Uh, instead, it started as a story of failures. Uh, mm. So a professor that I worked with over at Harvard Business School challenged me to say, look, a lot of technology companies in general only publish their successes. Here's the case story of somebody that bought some software, did some data thing, and money came raining down from the sky. Right. I'd be curious about the stories of failures. And that's important because oftentimes sure. when we only look at companies where they succeed at everything and then we try doing something ourselves and it proves to be a little bit harder, like sure. implementing CRM software, we suddenly start thinking there's something wrong with us or with our process or that we can't use data. When in reality, those cases are more the norm than the exception. Right. And so really what I did was in my day-to-day -day job at Google, I spend a lot of time talking to companies, thousands of companies, which means thousands of stories of failures and kind of aggregating them together and anonymizing them where appropriate to say, here are stories of companies that tried to embrace data and ran into challenges, challenges that are often very common and challenges that companies often think are just them, their culture, they just can't do this. And I just kind of documented them because companies, when I shared it with them, found them to be therapeutic. And of course, they, next said, they asked the next question. They were like, well, if these are all the stories of failure, what do you learn? What would you do differently? Sure. And it all started to group together around these themes about how they look at and how they treat their customers and their data. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that became the kind of the core of this entire book that you read. So you're 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 a Google guy. I mean, how many yeah. years did you spend at Google? Um, you know, how did you get to the point about writing about data? Because that's where this all this experience comes from, right? Yeah, yeah. About twelve years at Google right. during that time, entirely working within data. Right. Where it came to writing, it was simply this. Data is revered. Data is difficult to appreciate. It's boring. It's dry. We tend to live more with our heart than our mind in the real world. And especially when somebody picks up a book and they say, I have a, I have a precious hour of time in the evening. Do I want to read a book about data? The answer is going to be no, absolutely not. But then you realize that if you can tell a good, compelling story about data, you actually get to have a little bit of the best of both worlds. You get to have something that connects with the heart but also satisfies the mind. And that's really what I tried to approach was to say, it's not supposed to be a data book for data's sake. It's supposed to be a data book that allows people to realize how large of a world, how much opportunity there is. It's just a story that wasn't told in the right way, at least previously. Who do you want to read this book? To be perfectly honest, it was written for my kids. Hmm. Now, my kids are three and six. They don't really read. Say, so your kids are at MIT right now? Is that what yeah. you're telling me? But but when you start off writing, I, you know, when I started writing, I talked to a whole bunch of authors and they're like, picture your audience, lofty CEOs and people in power. 
Hmm. And, and you start pandering to them. You start softening your thoughts and you try speaking in a way that's not normal. And I thought, look, my kids are going to love me regardless. They're probably going to wonder what I spent all my days doing right now. They just think I'm in meetings. I want to write to them. Now, they're not going to read it yet, so it's not patronizing to the audience. But the idea was that in their 20s or 30s, as they enter into marketing or business, could I share some open, honest lessons about what I learned? The goal wasn't to be published. But then I started sharing it with university students. I thought this was a safe audience. They were surprised as to how much they learned. And then graduate students and then small businesses. Right. And so really, it's the audience is defined more by just sharing an interesting lessons about companies, about how they can use more data and how they can grow. Okay. All right. You write in the book, um, very early in the book, about the bullshit, that is the uh, phrase, digital transformation. Yes. You call it bullshit business speak right next to innovation, acceleration, and amplification. Um, I actually got to gotta throw in there, Neil. Like, you know, when if I hear somebody else tell me that they're data-driven, I don't know why that just fucking drives me nuts whenever I hear that term. But digital transformation. And by the way, the, the words digital transformation, am I wrong? Like, digital is like... Were they using that like in like Stanley Kubrick's 2001? Like the, the it seems like such oh, an yeah. outdated word to begin with. Anyway, why do you say it's such bullshit business speak? Because it's in the same category more recently as AI. Right. You tack it onto something you're doing and then all of a sudden you can command respect from investors so and businesses. True. Yeah, so we're, we're doing we're doing spreadsheets here. Not going to get anyone's attention. You start calling it an algorithm. It sounds, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> you're summing up two fields. That's, that's technically an algorithm. Um, and, and so- it is, it is style without substance. And yeah. so oftentimes, instead of actually thinking about what the strategy is, they just put it under a blanket term because honestly, investors and customers are saying, what are you doing with digital? What are you doing with AI? How are you yeah. transforming your business? And they put it on. And where I push back on it is that I don't think companies actually take a step back to say, what are we doing? Right. Why are we doing it? And is it meaningful? And sometimes you need to go hard on it, which is why I use the terminology that I do to get people to take a step back to say, huh, is this really the right path? Or did we just, very similar to AI in modern terms, see everybody doing it? So we felt bad if we weren't doing it too, without considering whether it was the right thing for the business or if it just becomes a massive distraction. Great for PR, but not really changing anything internal, central to the culture of the business. You know, it's funny, um, you know, you talk about the importance of data in this book. And, you know, I, I, so I do a lot of speaking to industry groups around the country about 50, 60 times a year. And they are the most boring, unsexy groups you can imagine. You know, the uh, Association of Corrugated Container Manufacturers or the Steel and Piping Distributors, you know, uh, yeah, these are all, but they're like the core of America. And I got to tell you one thing I have noticed, Neil, that, that, and why it dovetails into what you've written. Most of the people in the audience I speak to are middle-aged people because the average age of the typical small and mid-sized business owner is like 55 years old, according to the Small Business Administration. Um, but they they are different than their parents and their grandparents, particularly like during this last two years of inflation. Um, I am seeing more and more companies, instead of just doing you know price increases across the board, they have been leveraging the data that they have. Because again, their, their predecessors didn't have that. You know, They didn't have Epicor and Sage and SAP and Dynamics. Um, now I'm seeing business owners um, look at that data, carve it out, implement you know, price increases based on certain customers, certain margins, certain regions, certain industries. Data has become 
a lot more important for small and mid-sized business owners. Do you see that as well? Have you found that too? I, I see. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, data everywhere is becoming more accessible. There's more of it. It's becoming more helpful. The way that I look at it, though, is I say the goal of data uh, is not to be perfect with it. Yep. It's not to make perfect decisions. The goal is simply, can you use data in a way that allows you to be slightly better than the people you're competing with? Right. The right. world I work in is an online auction. <clears throat> if you have perfect information, you do not get a benefit of it. You get a benefit by having a slightly better decision, a slightly better price, a slightly better product than the other alternatives. Or I joke in the book a lot about personal relationships. My wife doesn't like this, but since we're recording it, it'll be, it will exist in perpetuity, which is I often will joke with her. I say, look, I'm not the best person for you. I'm right. simply the best person you found so far. <laughs> She'll argue with that. She'll debate it. That's where I come from. It's not like I married up. I'm, I'm just the best person you found. I got in there. and But that's oftentimes a case with the customers you're serving. They're not yeah. expecting you to be the perfect company with the perfect product. They just want to compare it to say, for my needs, this is the best I can do right now. Hmm. That's where data comes in and data is helpful. But again, if you don't have that perspective, a lot of companies get stuck where they say, we need to be perfect. Yeah, We need to have a perfect understanding, capture everything in a perfect area. And what they do is they never get to the using part. They just get to the collecting part. Yeah. And so what they do is they they overdo it with their data. So you write about, you know, for, I mean, my company sells CRM software. So this was really near and dear to my heart. You talk about customer conversations, you know? Yeah. So, you know, in any CRM platform, we do like Salesforce and Zoho and Dynamics and, you know, and, and yeah, we, you know, we have clients that record every single conversation and every interaction that they have with their customers. You're like, um, you say that doesn't make sense. Can you explain what you mean? You can certainly invest as much money as you want in capturing every nuance of every conversation. Right. The question is whether the value is there. You know, it's, it's nice to have it and maybe it makes us feel good that we store so much data, but I really challenge companies to start with, well, what are you actually going to do with the data that you're collecting? What is that hypothesis that you have? What is that question? Mm -hmm. If I understand this about the customer, how will I apply it? Right. Unfortunately, it goes backwards. It says, we believe that data is valuable, so I'll capture it all first, and then later I'll figure out what I want to do right. with it because I only have that moment. We also know from a lot of cases that it's not only when you capture data, but it's also when you should or should not use data. And so kind of a funny story, I was talking to a restaurateur in New York City and a very data-driven one. And, you know, it was just kind of like, I was like, how do you apply your data? You have a CRM system. You know, everybody that comes into your restaurant, you know, every time how much they ordered, how does that change the dining experience? And he pushed down this idea. He said, it's a lot about restraint. Mm -hmm. We may understand a lot, but there also need to be mm -hmm. leaders who say, this is not something we want to use. And so as an example, he's looking in the dining room and uh, a relatively new server walks up to a table and I guess he was happy because it was the first time he ever noticed one of his tables came back. It was a repeat guest. Right. CRM system backed it up. So he goes up. Oh, hello, Mr. So-and-so. Great to see you both again. Now the wife looks up at the server and says, I've never been here before. <laughs> <laughs> now we're walking through the possibilities. Like, well, let's see how this can go. He's like, first of all, the wife is upset. So she's going to have a terrible meal. Second is <laughs> now they're both going to have an awkward meal. Third thing is, even if he was here for, let's say, a business lunch, he's never going to come again because this thing can never be on a credit card receipt. So we just lost a customer. And what did we have to gain? 
What would have happened if they were like, oh, thank you for welcoming us back? Would they have actually spent more money, felt more connected? Maybe. Or did we just try to use data in a way? And so he said, was he said, oftentimes you have to balance that risk and reward that just because yeah. you can capture, just because you can ask it, you may not know how to use it in the right way. And so it always starts really with that first question, which is when, when I'm working with companies, I say, let's not start with collecting data because it's there or because we implemented a CRM system. Mm -hmm. Let's start with that hypothesis. Mm -hmm. What do we think is happening? What do mm -hmm. we think we could change? How do we think our customers are responding or what questions do our customers have? And mm -hmm. then you go and say, do we have the data yep. to understand it? And if we don't have the data, can we capture it? But more importantly, Here's the third question. So you have the hypothesis, you have the data. The third question is, what would we do differently if we knew this, if we could study it, if we could answer this question? If you don't have that action, then why go through the process of collecting data for it? Why go through the process of examining something? And so generally, if you are able to tie together that question to that action, then it makes sense. But going back to that original point, I think too many companies are just like, we'll collect, we'll collect, we'll collect. And like some poor CMO I talked to one time, she was three-year project to collect data. And I said, all right, you collect all this data. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, yeah. And she was like, oh, we're going to hire data scientists. And I was like, okay, good. I was like, what are the data scientists going to do? They're like, um, data science things. <laughs> and could you imagine a poor employee sitting there and be like, so what can I do with this data to help you? Uh, right. No, that's what you're supposed to figure out. <laughs> that's... That happens more than it should. So, a couple comments on that. First, for starters, uh, the restaurant example that you give is is a fascinating example. Really, you're absolutely right. It really does depend on the business. I can't tell you how many times I've checked into hotels at chains, and um, you know, and and I'll be asked, so, you know, is this your first time staying with us? You know, whereas if I've stayed at that hotel three times before, it's as if they don't even know that. And in yeah. the service, in the travel business, where it's a very service oriented. I don't know if you feel the same way, but like, you know, when I'm checking in for somebody to be like, you know, hey, Mr. Marks, thanks for coming back. I see you stayed with us back in April. Glad that you're, you're, you've returned. Like there's a little, there's an intangible thing that goes on in my brain that you know, gives me more loyalty. Like, oh, okay, you remember me and thank you. I'm special, you know? So in some businesses, it does make sense. Um, the restaurant business, just as a comment there, because I've been reading, I wanted to write about this soon, is about um, why there isn't more, surge pricing in in restaurant you know in the restaurant industry you know like you know the mlb <laughs> yeah. practices it you know you can go to a phillies game and depending on the weather the team they're playing the day of the week or whatever the time the day that you're purchasing the ticket obviously the airline industry practices this as well and you would think the restaurant industry would be like ripe for something like that but instead like you just gave the example they're collecting data like they may or may not have visited the restaurant before and that has absolutely no value to the restaurant or what has value is using the data to say, hey, you know what, if we, you know, discounted, you know, the, the you know, these meals, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to have more of a chance of getting more diners to come in and eat with us. You know, that like uh, makes sense. That, you know? I, I, I completely agree with you, but, and that's what's you're, you're, the way that you're going through that is exactly the right way, which is you're starting off to say, could we do surge pricing? What would happen if we did surge pricing? Then say, let's go to the data and yeah, see what, what data happen. do we need? Yeah, yes, it's not yes. just saying like, oh, let's collect all the data in the world. and Let's collect all the data in the world. And then you're looking for those questions. And right. a, a lot of times that's why companies end up unsatisfied is because they hand over that data to someone separated from the business who's just supposed to figure that out. Yep. As opposed to starting with, hey, here's a great idea. 
could we test this? Do we have that data and the capabilities? Yes, that is the way that those insights happen. Small portion of companies do it, and which is why you probably haven't seen the, the, that concept taking off right. in restaurants. Right. So the takeaway there is, you know, for, for for all of you guys watching and listening here, and you know, you're you've heard so much about being data driven and doing analytics and collecting data. And by the way, the 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 worst offenders of this are the software companies. No offense on the Googles and the Microsofts and big no. tech and all, because they want to encourage you to collect as much data as possible, regardless of whether or not you're going to use it. The right way to do it, Neil, what you're saying is you need to figure out what you need the data for first and then go and collect that data because yes. we all have limited resources. We can't collect it all in the world. Okay. So now we're, you know, say you gave the example, for, you talked about like approaches to asking your customers, you know, more questions, engaging them in deeper conversations. You said there's three approaches to doing that. One is um, through a website. Um, you know, your website, you give the example of like airlines, for example, that whether or not a trip is for business or for pleasure, because that yeah. that has an impact, you know, talk to me more about these you know, approaches. I mean, how to how to engage your customers more to get the data that you need. Well, it all it all starts with that hypothesis and that question. So let's talk about the business versus personal travel, one that I think all airlines should ask about. The hypothesis behind it is that business travelers are less price sensitive. Hmm. They're well, not paying. Right. They're not paying. Other things matter to them. And, and when you look through the airlines, there have been histories of it. Southwest Airlines originally, uh, when they were getting started, taking advantage of that to say, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter on giving them low fares. I mean, that helps getting them on the plane, but business travelers love free alcohol. Yes. Uh, which is right. why they still have the free drink coupons today is because it's to say, hey, you book with us. We're going to give you something back that helps you. Yeah. Absolutely. And 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 by the way, I can confirm that that we do like the free alcohol when we travel. <laughs> we do, and they give you the drink coupons, and that legacy continues. Yes. And yes. so what I what I look for it as when we're talking about this is to say, if you have those hypotheses where you're wondering to say, do my audiences want to share this information? Do they care? You have the ability on websites to capture it. A lot of companies don't. A lot of companies don't ask. Mm -hmm. They keep things very stagnant. Now, mm -hmm. let's talk about this modern practice. Where is one of the greatest opportunities to collect customer data? A lot of times people think, well, we don't want to do it when they get to the website because we don't want to distract them from buying. And we don't want to do it during the checkout process because they're ready to check out. All valid arguments. Okay. What about the thank you page? Mm -hmm. Turns out data supports that the height of customer trust is right when they give you their money because they now trust you to deliver that product. Yeah, yeah. And then what happens? At the height of trust, you say thank you, which is appropriate. You give them an order number they're not going to write down <laughs> and you encourage them to close that window as quickly as possible and go on their way. Right, true. And it turns out that that ground is probably the best place where companies are starting to say, hey, let's ask a few more questions. Now, they're not just arbitrary questions to be like, what do you want us to build or do you love us? make you feel good, but they're very pointed to specific use cases. For instance, how much are you spending with us versus your competitors? Right. Is there an opportunity here? Do we have a small portion of your share wallet or do we have 100% of what you spend? How happy were you with the checkout process? How happy are you with your prices? Would you have paid a little bit more? Would you have bought more? Would you have bought this product if we charge a little bit less? The idea is not to agree on three or four questions, but to look at it as almost a place where you can experiment to see what are customers willing to share, what would we do with that data, and can we be more responsive to their needs? If you were able to ask all your customers three or four different questions each week, 
Imagine what you would learn from those interactions versus sure. capturing the same fields you've had for the past 10 years sure. on the checkout process. It doesn't help to expand that conversation. But the broader goal is always the same, to be able to better understand your customers so you can deliver more value to them and understand where you can capture a little bit more value back. Maybe they're willing to pay a little bit more. But that's where experimentation comes in, is to be able to have that back and forth, as opposed to saying, we have our questions, these are always our questions, and they won't change for years. And yet, you also point out in your book that regardless of the data that you collect, um, it's really, really hard to use that information to try and predict human behavior, right? You can't rely on it entirely. Yeah. People, people are random. I mean, there's no perfect <laughs> thing to say to anybody. But again, the goal isn't to be able to make perfect predictions as much as it is to make a slightly better prediction. I'll right. get along with these people more than those people. So I may spend a little bit more time with them, all things being equal. These customers are certain to come back. So maybe I don't want to send them my next discount and promotion. Or maybe these customers are only going to be alive if they receive a discount and promotion. And I have to ask myself, are they worth the effort? And so again, it's just kind of leading indicators where you want to say, with the data you have, how do you feel about this customer in this relationship? And does it make sense to your business? Okay. Um, what I love about this book as well, Neil, is that you don't, um, it's not It's not the data, it's the process of collecting the data. I mean, you, you say right out in the book that you ask questions of people and people lie, or maybe not willingly or uh, voluntarily, yeah. Uh, or consciously, but you know, a lot of times people just don't tell the truth. I mean, to, you know, different people have a different reality than what reality might be. So you just you can't rely all the time on customer, you know, on people's responses to your questions. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like, what can you do to to collect better data when you know that the people that you're collecting it from, you know, have a have a pretty good probability of providing you with wrong information. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd say probably the best thing that you can do is to accept it. That if you ask people, oftentimes you're like, tell me the truth. What do you think of this shirt? <laughs> you're going to have some friends that will tell you honestly what they think and everybody else will hedge thinking in the back of their mind. Well, I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. I have no upside if I tell them what I really think about the shirt. So I'll be like, it's nice. Right. It's nice. Or, uh, you know, the uh, I was talking to some of the people over at the Ritz Carlton Hotel. We talk about them, and they say, you know, one of the worst questions we can ask is when somebody is checking out to say, "How were things?" Because mm. what do we get? Yeah. Oh, they, they were, were good. Great. They're yeah. good, great. And then we oh. leave with a false sense of security because in the back of their head, they're saying, "Do I really want to complain? Do I want to start this? I'm checking out." Yeah. So instead, they frame that question as to say, "What could we have done better?" Mm. Inviting that criticism. And so part of it with that data capture is not only to accept what's happening, but also realize that how we ask questions mm. can influence the decisions that we give. In fact, even when you're running surveys, the order of questions, if you ask somebody their gender or their age at the front of a survey, you start to see more personal biases that we hold. Talk about women, uh, in some cases, when they gave a math test, performed worse just because they reminded them of their gender prior to the test. Right. Right. And, and so what we do is we learn, just as we do in the real world, how to interact with people, what we can say, what we can't say. And so effectively, a website doesn't be, it becomes a living laboratory where we learn how to have a good conversation. What are the questions that are going to give us better data, better answers, and where are there going to be limits to say, despite our best intentions, people are going to give us information 
that we should look at critically, not to look at as absolute truth, but to say, is there something here worth exploring? Or is it to say, we just can't ask this, we can't capture this data, and we're going to be okay with it? Questions for you on this that are a little bit, a little bit off script, but you mentioned go ahead, go ahead. Well, you, you mentioned surveys earlier, and um, I, I, I'd love your thoughts on surveys. I mean, do you, do you find them to be a reliable tool? Um, is is the first part. I have more, but give me some of your thoughts on on surveys. From a reliability side, with the right incentives, they can be. Now, okay. I can tell you from a basic survey, there was one that was done a few years ago where we asked the thousands of people online what color was the red ball, and 25% of people got it wrong. <laughs> is that so, a, That's a true story. That is a true story because you <laughs> need these calibration questions because oftentimes you say, how good is this data? If we give yeah. people a clear, unambiguous question, are they simply clicking through? But in those cases, it was a matter of incentives. They were incentivized to get through the survey, and so they did. I see. Now, so you, what you're saying is they were just responding anything so they could just get through the survey because they they, the they got some kind of reward. At the start end. offering right. rewards, gift cards, and the goal is to get through the survey as quickly as possible. I've been guilty of that. Keep going. And so I look at it oftentimes as a matter to say, uh, what, what does the other side get for it? Yeah. And so when I look at it to say, if we're going to go back and forth, you're going to ask me all these questions. You know, you're going to be me? sitting somewhere. You can be like, hey, so did you go skiing? And my, my question would be, no, why? <laughs> Why are you curious about that? And I think where companies struggle sometimes is that they don't explain clearly to their customers what they're going to do with that data. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the conversation that drives in. And we don't have to go deep on this, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of pushback in terms of customer privacy these days because mm -hmm. companies have asked a lot, mm -hmm. but have just provided nebulous statements to say, so we can better deliver you products and services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If companies are explicit to say, this is what we're asking you about, and mm -hmm. this is what we're going to do with that data. Mm -hmm. Then you get better quality responses because consumers see it in their best interest to provide you with accurate data. If instead yeah. the transaction is, I give you a question, and if you answer it, I give you 5% off, yeah. then it doesn't matter whether I give a good answer or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the in the 25 years I've been running my company, we've never done a survey. We have about 600 active clients right now. I've always been on the, I mean, they're mostly small, smaller companies. I, I, my, my, my point has always been that if they pay their bills, that's all the survey I need, you know, <laughs> so, they're happy because for my clients, if they're not happy, I'll, I'll know that right away because they'll be open invoices. You know what I mean? So I, I think to myself, like, you know, why even go through the effort of gathering that data? Because I don't think it's going to teach me a lot. But then again, Neil, I mean, like it, it could teach me more. I mean, there is data that I could be gathering about my clients. It's just that, like you just said, I, I don't want to bother them. I'm not a survey guy myself. I don't like it when people survey you know, me. Um, and I just don't know what you, I guess there's always going to be a percentage of people that will happily fill out a survey. There will be a percentage of people that just were never going to do it. That's me. Um, and then it's trying to entice that people in between, you know, in the middle to give honest answers. And I guess it's, there's no, there's no right or wrong approach to do that unless you, you thought of specific ways to entice somebody that makes sense. You just said like providing a reward at the end of the survey doesn't make sense because you're going to have people yeah. that are just going to throw in a bunch of bullshit well, so they can get the reward. That's the thing. And so let's up level this a little bit more. What are we really talking about? We're saying surveys are a way to have a conversation with your customers, to talk to them about what they're doing, how they're spending, what they think about you. Yeah. It's not the only vehicle you could do it. Certainly if you have a physical store, you're going to see people come into that store and you can ask them questions. If you're yeah. online only and you rarely interact, then maybe surveys are one option to do it. But it always comes back to it, not the fact that 
people, I get companies sometimes they're like, well, we need to run a survey because everybody runs a survey and a survey yeah. is a best practice. Say no. Not, what you are know, you I hoping just, to learn? Not to interrupt <laughs> you, but- a question. <laughs> I think one of the one of the many benefits that I do think will come from from all the conversational chatbots, the AIs, the uh, the ChatGPTs of the world, yeah, um, is is personalization. Because I think you and you and I both want that. You know, like I will share information if I truly feel like the person asking me the question knows who I am and who's being asked. So if I get a survey from a hotel. That just says, what do you think of your experience? I'm like, okay, clearly this is a boilerplate can survey. You know, <laughs> you go to yeah. a web page where it's the web page is named Net Promoter Score Feedback. Literally, just literally, yeah, literally. Whereas if I got a survey saying that, you know, um, you know, we, we noticed that you 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 purchased this meal or that you um you stayed at our hotel for like two nights or that you took advantage of this service, you know, what did you think of it? You know what I mean? Or that the housekeeper who cleaned your room, that you know, her name was you know Ellen. You know what I mean? What did you think of her? It's just something that I think to me. So, and getting back to my selfish example, like with my own business, if I were to send out a survey to a client that was like, you know, what did you think of, of Dina's service who implemented your Zoho and yeah. did the reports about pipeline and, you know, customer interactions with, with a helpful report. Like if it's personalized type of stuff, I think that the person receiving it will be like, oh shit. I mean, this you know, it seems like it's coming right from the horse's mouth. Like they know what I, what we did and um, it's, I'm it's more inclined exactly to answer, you know? I yeah, and, and, well, you make, you make a great point there, which is notice how simple those examples were. Yeah. Instead of here's a generic net promoter score to say, here's something you did. Here's somebody that helped you. We'd like feedback on them. Yeah. It's yeah. so simple and so few companies do it. And again, yeah. this is, I think, the larger point we're talking about. We talk about data and digital transformation is that companies become obsessed with these huge tools to say, yeah. let's just go out there and vacuum up all this information that they miss just those basic normal interactions, those simple opportunities that are accessible to all businesses. How hard is it to personalize it to say, this person cleaned your room? Yep. And all the data supports that those types of personalized interactions. I'll give you another one. Uh, adding a first name yeah the subject line of an email yeah. improves open rates improve, yeah. improves click through rates reduces unsubscribes and i want you to go into your inbox today as a test yeah. and see how many companies actually did that when they sent you a message you've given them their name and they're just like well time to come back here it's like no Use my name. You know me. I've given Agreed. it to you. Agreed. Agreed. And by the way, you know, this gets back to data, but make sure you're using the right name. I mean, I that, <laughs> yes. I have there are I have this, there are rules to it. Yes. I do have this weird thing that happens with me is I you have no idea how many people call me Mark instead of Gene. Um, it's it's like literally something in the brain. I'm not quite sure. People that know me, like some you know, clients or pro people that I've had interactions with. And then I'll get an email back. Well, they'll be like, thanks very much, Mark. You know, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, like, that's going to go the opposite way. Yeah, it go, that has the opposite effect when somebody fucks up something as basic as that. So your data has got to be good and accurate and you have to be careful to do that. But I don't know. Again, I, I, I do have a lot of confidence that, that AI is going to help us make things more personalized going forward. Uh, which will have its good side, its bad side. But all right, let's move on because I just so much. I'm like halfway through my notes here. No, this is great. Um, this is great. Keep going. You talk in your book about the CLV model. Yes. And you explain to us what that is and why you think it's important. CLV in a nutshell, it's just predicting how a relationship is going to turn out. 
Right. Not an average, not all of my customers will do this, but looking at them as an individual level and saying- By the way, this sounds a lot like net promoter scores, just saying. <laughs> there's, there's some differences, but it's just saying for any particular customer, how are they going to behave? Are they going to be great or not? And I use real world life comparisons the best is to say, is this someone that's going to be your best friend, your soulmate, be with you through anything? Or is this relationship just doomed? Maybe not doomed. Maybe that's too strong of a word just to be transactional. It's a great Uber driver. He gets five stars. We had a great conversation. I'm never going to see him again. Mm. But to be able to distinguish who is who. And mm -hmm. I kind of make this a joke to say it's the same thing with, you know, if you had an important decision to make for your life or your company, you'd probably go to those people that are providing you with the most value as opposed to taking all those customers, including those you won't see again, and saying, let's just do a survey and average everything together. Yeah. Giving giving my wife as much of a say in a decision in my life as the Uber driver yeah. would not work well. And so we don't do it. But it's knowing who's who. Now, the difference between things like lifetime value, where lifetime value, you're calculating out the individual value of those customers, how much those people are going to be worth. Net promoter score, you're asking them what you think, what you draw inferences from. Right. The only difference between the two, well, there's a lot of differences, but the big difference that we're talking about here is net promoter score versus lifetime value. Lifetime value is a little bit harder to manipulate. It's based on actual orders, actual sales, the behaviors of the customer. Net promoter score is how do they feel at that moment? And the reason why I'm a little bit more uh, aggressive towards a net promoter score is I've seen too many times where it's been manipulated. Yeah. I've been at a restaurant where I was, uh, I was uh, <laughs> in London and one of the gentlemen was like, Oh, I was like, you're American. So I know you're going to give me a tip. <laughs> Excuse me. He's like, I know you're going to give me a tip instead. When you get a net promoter score thing, can you just give me a 10? Cause that's how we get our bonuses. Yeah. Companies, yeah. when they see that target, that's easier for them to drive and to change. Right. Right. So there is more subjective data that's going to a net promoter score than into a customer lifetime value calculation. Because CLV is, that's based on sales, right? I mean, it's actually- Yeah, they have to spend money. They have to buy. It's yeah. not, how do I feel? It's not checking a box or button. And that was so a little bit less subject to manipulation, like that orange ball example we had earlier. This customer lifetime value, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I'll ask you from an accounting standpoint, does that calculation get used- by companies that value other businesses. Um, if I was going to purchase a company, um, at, you know, would would one of the metrics that I would consider using would be customer lifetime value to see, what, you know, you know, to, to give myself sort of an intangible idea of, of what that company's customers are like, or do you not see that ever in the you should, world? You should do it. You Customers are the most valuable asset you're going to have. And there's no reason that you can't look at these future returns, these future cash flows of customers, the same way you look at any other asset that's going to give you predictable returns. Okay. Where things become a little bit harder when you look at something like real estate versus customers is that the methodology for calculating those customer returns isn't as established or understood. It's right. not to say it doesn't exist. It's to say that I have worked with some companies that I say, how are you valuing this business? And they said, well, the company came back and said, our lifetime value is $700 for each customer, and we have 50,000 customers, so we just <laughs> multiply the two together. Right. It's like, well, wait, wait a minute. First of all, you took their word for it, and the yeah. methodology, there's no government regulation or financial mandate to say this is how you calculate it. And on the investor side, they should have realized every customer isn't worth the same. Yeah. And so they broke some of those fundamental principles. So just to say is it can be done. It should be done. 
but it's not standardized enough to where I would believe a company when they just say it without going and peeking under the hood to be like, do you really understand this? In fact, when I work with companies that say they use lifetime value, one of the easiest diagnostic questions I ask is I say, oh, so you're using lifetime value. I was like, what have you found? And if they come back and they say, well, our average customer is worth X and they don't necessarily know individual customers, then yeah. I have a sense that you're curious about it, but you kind of took a shortcut to get there. And I wouldn't trust that number as much as one. I had this actually, one of your previous guests, Professor Pete Fader mm -hmm. was on, uh, I think in, in late April. I actually what? had one company, it was a telco, that mm -hmm. we were talking, I was like, are you thinking about using lifetime value? And <clears throat> the director of analytics raises his hand, he's like, when you say lifetime value, now he's asking me, he's like, what models are you thinking about? And I was like, well, I work, you know, I've, I've worked with this professor, Pete Fader, he's a really smart guy. I, this actually happened, he puts his hand out, he's like, it's like everybody, he's like, we can listen to this man. It's like, really? And I was like, why is that? He's like, well, Pete Fader was my professor when I was at Wharton. So if you know his methodology, <laughs> Then it's got to work. <laughs> and it's not to say that we want to be dogmatic about it, that there's only one way of calculating. It's just that if you're not doing it in a great way, just like any financial calculation, any prediction, sure. you can lead to a difference versus reality that's a little bit too wide for me. Sure. You know, you you use that exact example and you talk about, um, I actually I made notes, a million guys walk into a Silicon Valley bar, no one buys anything. <laughs> but it's declared a massive success. <laughs> yep. Well, look at all these customers that will eventually monetize. I love it. Yes. How do you figure out a customer lifetime value for say like a business like mine, Neil? I mean, like, you know, I don't have, I am not Xfinity or Verizon. I don't have like these recurring revenues that every cloud-based company loves. I mean, you know, yep. I go from project to project to project. And if I, I always tell people that if I got hit by a bus, you know, my company would fold within weeks because it's all about me. It's a typical small business story, you know? Um, and I, you know, when I look at all of my customers, I mean, I can point you to customers that have given me about tens of thousands of dollars, you know, over the years for different projects, but there's no guarantee that they're going to, you know, continue to do that. You know, there's no contract to do it. How does a company figure out their customer lifetime value when, when they're in that situation, which is very common for a lot of companies? Well, I'd say with, with any company, once they have enough customers, they have enough data, the patterns start to become evident. What's really important to me is how that data is used. Okay. The data should never be used as an absolute truth. And it shouldn't be similar to, you know, in your business, I wouldn't expect you to get rid of underperforming customers and only keep small customers. What I would hope, going back to one of the themes we touched on earlier, was that it would just give you enough of an insight as to where to nudge your business. Right. Or as Pete actually likes to put it, I don't know if he fishes a lot, but he does use a lot of fishing metaphors. So I'm going to borrow <laughs> one of his. I don't know if he fishes either, actually. He, he talks opinion. about it. He's like, he's like it's, it's not about a picture. You have an ocean of customers. This is how he explained it to me. And I love it. So I'm borrowing it. Okay. Like say you have an ocean of customers. He said, where people go with lifetime values, they say, now we can identify the whales. We're going to go out and we're going to hunt whales. Right. He's like a pragmatic fisherman is going to know there's only a handful of whales out there and they're hard to catch. And so the way that we want to use lifetime values to say, instead of simply going out into a random spot in the ocean and casting our nets, let's use lifetime values as a guide to say, here's a slightly better spot to fish. Hmm. Here's, a, here's a metric, here's a data point that says, if we go fish over here today, we may capture more large fish than we did the day before. Hmm. And so we'll end up being more profitable. We'll end up growing a little bit. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go in that night 
and we're going to take a look at our data and say, can we find an even slightly better spot to fish tomorrow? Mm. And why it works so incomprehensibly well is because most of the people out there fishing aren't using that information at all. Right. They're just going out and being like, well, we know how to fish. We've been doing this. Out we go. And you just have a little bit of a secret signal. You have something to make a slightly better decision that your competitors don't have. Right. You know how to capture a little bit more information than your customers, even if it's not perfect. You know how to apply that information. You know how to think about the relationship and about the future. And you know where the bias comes from. And so that allows you, again, not to make perfect decisions to say only whales, but to say, hey, look, we're doing better than everybody else because we're being careful and thoughtful about the data that we're capturing. Neil, you spoke a little bit later on in your book about decision-making regarding your data and the actions that you take and the way that you collect. And you used um, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, his his very famous um, analogy is, is, is strategy for making decisions. He says there's type one decisions and <clears throat> type two decisions. The type one decisions, for those of you guys that aren't familiar with this, is that uh, they can't be changed. You know, they are like, super, super like, you know, important, rigid kinds of things. Um, and those decisions need to be really deliberated carefully. Um, and there are a relatively small amount of the decisions people make. The, the, most of the decisions that we make in business are, are what, what he calls a type two decision, which means they can be changed, which means that you can, you can make these decisions quicker. And then, you know, if they're not working, you can, you know, tweak them or adjust them or do something differently. Tell me how that applies, that decision-making methodology applies to, you know, you know, to, to building your data model, towards analyzing your data, towards, uh, you know, looking at your customer's lifetime value. Why is that so important to you? It's important to me because it gives people room to be <clears throat> wrong. No, look, nobody wants to be wrong in data. It's terrible to suggest it going in, which is why so many companies look at every decision as those type one, absolutely perfect, irreversible. Now, we know that's not true. Yeah, But it goes back to that idea where companies can't think beyond this idea of perfection to say, if we're using data, we need that complete understanding. And I'm going back and saying, no, what your goal is, is growth. And if you want to grow, here's what you want to do. First of all, you want to make decisions because if you don't make decisions, nothing happens. But you only need a majority of those decisions to work. Right. Like you have a basket of stocks. You just need more to perform well than poorly, and you're still going to have a net positive result. And so what it's really doing is taking a step back to saying, do you need perfect data or can you go out and try something new and collect data that way? So instead of trying to figure out what the right thing is to say to every customer, what prohibits you from trying multiple things and using that to collect your data to say what actually worked and what we should do going forward? I'm surprised as to how many companies will obsess about what they should say before they go out and do it. I make this analogy in the book, keeping with that th theme that by this point for the poor listeners are probably exhausted with it of personal <laughs> relationships. But it's like almost saying to say, look, look, I don't want to get rejected tonight when I go out and meet somebody. Right. So instead, I'm going to study all the data to figure out what the perfect thing is to say to somebody so that I'm not rejected. Right. And they never get their ass off the couch. Right. It's like, because I don't know, rejection is terrible. I don't want to do that. As opposed to people that say, look, Nobody has anything perfect to say. I'm going to see what works for me. I'm going to try different things. And then you have that success. Mm. I think where a lot of companies miss out is that they don't see how important and how common this approach of trial and error is with successful companies. They go out there and they see the outcome. 
They go out there and they see the outcome to say, this company ran this great campaign. God, if only I knew this was a slogan I should have used, or this was a mm. price I should have put my product, I could have been as successful as them. Mm. They don't go back and see how many failed attempts mm. they had and how many things they tried that didn't work that led them to that conclusion. And so when they're going out there, they just sit there and obsess and be like, I need to figure out this, this right slogan, this right promotion so I can be as successful. The process is more from those type two decisions, that iteration, that comfort with risk, and that ability to say, if it doesn't work, we're going to take a step back. But at the very least, we would have learned a lot about how our customers respond. And that's still winning. Which is why you employ things like A-B testing, correct? Yeah. yeah. Testing, testing is, what I, I say with testing is this. I say, I want to test as much as possible. Mm -hmm. If I know how it's going to guide what I'll do next, mm -hmm. I also will test assuming I have the right outcome in mind. Mm -hmm. so for instance, if I'm testing a lot to say, what's going to get people to buy my next product? Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. But on the other hand, offering them cheap promo codes will also be a great way to get everybody to buy my product. Right. So instead, right. I want that outcome. And that's where everything comes full circle with lifetime value is that if you're testing, you need to make sure you have the right outcome in mind, that you are measuring the right thing. Otherwise, you could lull yourself into a false sense of security to say, we know the lever to pull to get more sales. Do you really want more sales or do you want more customers that are going to come back on their own and more co customers that are going to come back without sales? Right. And so I'm just, with experimentation, I'm very mindful to say, I need to know the outcome. I need to make sure that it's measured correctly. And I need to know uh, that it fits in the right place in my business. We are almost out of time. I have just a couple more questions for you. This is great stuff. Sure. It's it's fascinating. I'll go quickly through them. I don't want to leave anything on. The book is fascinating. I, it's it's really good. You 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 talk about growth hacking, and I'm wondering if you can expand on that concept. The easiest way that I look at growth hacking, I'm, I'm God. I hate the terms. I hate some of those terms. I was terms. just going to say overused, overused. I know, and I'm bashing like them. Here's, a bullshit here's. technology jargon, you know. But well, there's too many people do. Like important. we want to hire growth hackers. All right, here's what I want you to do. Let's talk about something positive. Right. What I love about entrepreneurial companies is they're very straightforward in terms of what their advantage is. They can move quickly. They move quickly because they realize that they have a huge company they need to compete with. And the only way they can do it is by taking advantage of what companies can't do, which is move quickly themselves. Right. And I think any company has this ability to look at small opportunities and say, how can we quickly move on them? What I worry is that a lot of companies only focus on their top three or five opportunities and they leave a lot of stuff behind. Mm. The book is peppered with a whole bunch of silly examples that to be honest, if I went in front of a large client of mine and say, all right, the secret to your business is to put the first name in the subject line. <laughs> they'd be like, really? That's it? And they'd be like, no, no, it needs to be more complicated. It needs to be an 18 month <laughs> process with a lot of software. No, that's what I talk about when I talk at its core essence of hacking is to say, a focus on small iterative opportunities that you can quickly implement with low risk that can move your business forward. Do not turn those down. Final question. Um, and it's really sort of just a summation, Neil. So, you know, th this book, this is your first book. Am I correct? It is first book. Okay. Um, so I guess it's a two part question. First of all, what do you want people to take away from this book? Uh, I, I know what I've taken away from it, but I can share that later. Uh, what do you want a reader to take away? And number two is, um, you know, is there a part two to this? What I'd like a reader to take away is that 
if nothing else, even if you disagree with me on lifetime value or experimentations, is the fact that data is accessible. Right. One of the great tragedies of business is that we relegate data to a small group of data scientists or data yeah. analysts where everyone else just sits and takes in their results. A PowerPoint presentation, awful story. But to show people that everyone can participate in this conversation of data, as long as you make it accessible, as long as you make it human, and you know where your experience plays in that story. That's really where it comes from. A data book that was designed not to be a data book, but show everybody else how their conversations, how their input is valued. Is there a part two? Yes, certainly data has to continue. But if I were to write a part two of this book, it would not be continuing the customer story. I think I've said everything that I have in that book. And I think I, I wrote it to a natural conclusion. Sure. But instead would go through to say, here's how people can make better decisions for their lives, for their businesses, by just using data in a thoughtful way. Because there's so many opportunities in it. We're, we drill down on the customer lifetime value. They're looking at people as, as people. Mm -hmm. But instead looking how to say everything from pricing to how you position your product, to how you develop products could be better off if more people were able to combine the data that they had with the experience they've already built. Do you think that you know AI is going to be doing a lot of that for us in the years to come? I think AI is going to take over some of the heavy lifting. I think it's going to simplify stories, and I look forward to that. But at the end of the day, there's things AI can't capture and understand. We talk about the billions of rows of data that go into some of these AI models like ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But those are things that human beings have already explored and done. What will an AI model know about the next product that you're building? What will it know about the customers if you haven't captured that data? Right. I think it's really good at understanding averages. I'm not sure it's going to be as great with innovation. It will tell fantastic stories, but I don't think it's going to make up great science fiction or fantasy, something the world hasn't seen. And so I think it's going to put a greater emphasis on what makes human beings unique. Our ability to understand and to have feelings and sensations and emotions as opposed to raw data. And so I think there will be a balance between the two where ChatGPT is going to make all those data layers more accessible and easy, mm -hmm. but they can't replace the human component that allows us to use that data to connect with actual people. The book is called Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. I've been speaking with Neil Hoyne. Neil, uh, thank you so much for your time. It is a great book strongly recommend that people running businesses, managers in businesses, take a look at it. It teaches you a lot about the importance of the data in your business, how to collect it, um, and how to use it to grow your business. So, uh, Neil, thank you. Gene, thank you so much. Great conversation, everybody. And thank you so much for watching and listening. You have been attending this, uh, this, this conversation of BizBooks. My name is Gene Marks. I hope you guys have learned something. I'll be back in two weeks with another book by another smart author. Maybe not as smart as Neil, but close. Uh, that will help you hopefully run your business, even run your life. Thanks again for watching and listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care.